You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey guys, it's Mike Rowe. This is The Way I Heard It, the only podcast for the curious mind with a short attention span. Today I'll tell you the true story of a patient man who met a girl, fell in love, and did what he had to do to make that girl an honest woman. Then, another true story about another patient man, a patient man with limited resources who employed a unique parenting style that left his son convinced that rich people were more to be pitied than envied. That man happens to be my father, John Rowe, who is still, against some very long odds, married to my mother, Peggy. In fact, Peggy Rowe herself has agreed to join me for a profoundly unscripted conversation about whatever it is mothers and sons talk about these days, when the mother is a best-selling author and the son is a guy who invites her onto his podcast for a quick catch-up. It's episode 182. It's called Mother Knows Best, and it starts right now. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Chapter 5. A Patient Man John was a patient man. His attraction to Peggy had been instantaneous and profound. Their courtship, a whirlwind of barely suppressed passion. And now, as John stood at the altar, watching the object of his affection walk slowly toward him, his thoughts were those of a man whose patience was finally about to pay off. As Peggy drew ever closer, and the organ heralded the coming of the bride, John recalled the day he'd proposed. At first, Peggy had demurred. She said she'd think about it tomorrow. But John was persistent, as well as patient, and eventually she said, yes. How happy he had been, how relieved. He knew that the most eligible debutante in Atlanta had accepted proposals from five other men, all with more to offer than he could ever hope to match. He knew that she had broken off all those engagements. But now, here they were, Peggy in her wedding gown and John in his tuxedo, standing just a few feet apart. The ceremony was a blur. Scriptures were quoted, songs were sung, the minister spoke sacred words, and all of Atlanta's society bore witness. Then, the tricky part came. Before he got to the vows, the minister regarded the congregation and invited anyone present who might object to the union to speak now or forever hold their peace. John glanced out at the faces of those assembled in the crowded church and held his breath. He knew that several of Peggy's previous suitors were in attendance. 
Would they object? What would he do if they did? The moment passed. John exhaled slowly, and when the minister asked the groom if he would love, honor, and cherish Peggy from this day forward, John stared into the face of his true love and said the only thing he could say. Nothing, because the preacher was not talking to John. The preacher was talking to John's best friend, a man named Barian Upshaw, Red to his friends. Today, Red was the man that Peggy was marrying. John had plenty of objections, but disinclined as he was to forever hold his peace, he had no intention of speaking now. He proceeded with his plan instead. He smiled, he handed Red the wedding band, and applauded as his best friend married the love of his life. The following days, weeks, and months were difficult for John. He knew his true love was in the arms of another man. But John couldn't really blame Peggy. Red was a charmer. He looked like a film star. He'd made a fortune as a Prohibition-era bootlegger, and he possessed a mercurial quality that made him irresistible to the fairer sex. John Marsh, on the other hand, was a mild-mannered public relations man who dabbled in journalism. As Peggy had told John when she broke their engagement, along with his heart, life is under no obligation to give us what we expect. Indeed. But with respect to expectations, John knew something that Red and Peggy did not. He knew them. He knew them better than they knew themselves or each other. John knew that Red expected a compliant and cooperative wife. He knew that Peggy expected a tolerant and devoted husband. In time, John believed their expectations would go unmet. And when they did, he knew that Red Upshaw would no longer give a damn about his sacred vows. He'd be more likely to give his blushing bride a whack. And Peggy would never tolerate that. Two months went by before Red ran out of patience with the fiery woman who couldn't help but speak her mind. When she showed him a bit too much sass, he showed her the back of his hand. And that was that. Peggy moved out, and John was waiting to pick up the pieces. Before long, he proposed again. Peggy told him she'd think about it tomorrow. John smiled and said he'd heard that one yesterday. Peggy smiled back, and this time she said yes, straight away. And they lived happily ever after. Sadly, ever after would last only 24 years. Peggy was killed by a drunk driver when she was just 48. But during her time with John, she didn't just find true love. She found her true voice. With John's encouragement, Peggy started to write. She wrote about love and passion, pride and prejudice, war and death, hope, and all the things in between. Some say she wrote the story of her own life. Peggy never confirmed that. But, then again, the most famous character she created was a strong-willed southern belle, a beautiful socialite named Pansy, whom every man wanted to wed. Peggy swore up and down that Pansy had nothing to do with her. But she did choose for Pansy's husband a dashing, 
mercurial bootlegger, who she swore had nothing to do with Red. As for the character Pansy desired but could never possess, a man married to her best friend? No, that guy wasn't inspired by John Marsh. Not at all. Whatever the truth was, the publishers loved Peggy's manuscript. They only had one change to make when it came to the 1,037-page novel, which went on to win the Pulitzer Prize and sell 30 million copies in the process. They thought the name Pansy was too weak for the fiery character Peggy had pulled from thin air, and John convinced Peggy that the publishers were right. In real life, that's exactly how it happened. A dashing bootlegger named Red Upshaw frankly, didn't give a damn, while an average Joe named John Marsh knew with certainty that tomorrow would be another day. As for Margaret Mitchell, she'd written herself as a pansy, though her publisher knew she was really a scarlet. And as for everything else, well, that is gone with the wind. If you ask the other John and Peggy, my parents, how they've managed to stay married for well over half a century, they'll credit an uncompromising level of honesty with each other. If you press them, though, you'll learn that their commitment to the truth did not extend to their children. Indeed, when it came to raising three boys on a public school teacher's salary, my parents lied like rugs. I remember a television commercial that used to air during Baltimore Orioles' home games. It was for an amusement park in Ocean City, Maryland. According to the announcer, a visit there would amount to the time of my life. At that particular moment, my life had amounted to about nine years. For the most part, I was satisfied with the way things were going. Then I saw the wild mouse. The Wild Mouse was a giant roller coaster that threatened to leap from our black-and-white television and smash through the wall of our tiny den. It shared the Ocean City boardwalk with the Roundup, the Tilt-A-Whirl, and other mysterious contraptions that plunged and spun this way and that. I'd never seen anything like them, a parade of machines devised for no purpose other than pure enjoyment. I remember the camera zooming in on a kid about my age. He was strapped into the wild mouse next to a pretty girl, his excitement teetering on the verge of rapture. I was transfixed. Hey, Peggy, get a load of these ding-a-lings on the TV. I think they're going to puke on each other. My parents were sitting on the sofa behind me. Oh, those poor children, Mom said. Why would anyone stand in line all day just to get vomited on? Obviously, Peggy, those kids are deranged. Look at them. I searched the sea of jubilant faces for signs of idiocy or nausea. Isn't it sad, John, how some children need machines to have fun? It sure is, Peg. It sure is. Later, another commercial appeared, this one for a movie called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It was playing at the Senator, and according to the announcer... It was a thrilling film for the whole family, a must-see event. I had never been to the Senator before or any other movie theater. I was captivated. Tell me something, Peg. Why would anyone want to see the movie when they could read the book instead? 
books are so much more interesting. Well, John, as I understand it, movies are for children who can't read very well. Isn't that sad? It sure is, Peg. It sure is. In 1971, we didn't have the money for amusement parks or must-see events, but I never felt bad about missing such things. I was too busy feeling sorry for people who had to endure them. Hey, Dad, can we order a pizza tonight? A what? We had never eaten a pizza before, much less ordered one. The concept of food delivery was completely foreign. Bobby Price says his mother has a pizza pie delivered right to their house every Friday night, I said, and Chinese food every Wednesday. My father sighed and spoke with a hint of sadness. Look, son, Bobby's mother doesn't know how to cook. It's not her fault they can't have normal food. Then, quietly to my mother, Peg, maybe you should call Miss Price. Give her the recipe for your meatloaf casserole. Of course, John. That poor boy deserves a home-cooked meal. He sure does, Peg. He sure does. It was a strange sort of snobbery to develop at such an early age, this sympathy for the more fortunate. But that's precisely what my parents engendered. With duplicity and guile, they turned envy to pity. By the time I was eleven, I felt nothing but compassion for classmates of mine who had been forced to wear the latest fashions. Sadly, they had no older cousins to provide them with a superior wardrobe of softer, sturdier, broken-in alternatives. One Sunday, after church, our neighbors came by with the slideshow from their most recent family vacation, hundreds of photos from Yellowstone and Yosemite. The Brannigans had stayed for hours and hours and told stories about Indians and geysers and wild bears. My brothers and I were spellbound. When they left, my dad smiled and waved as they pulled out of the driveway. But when he turned around, his expression spoke for him. Oh, those poor bastards, it said. Like a Greek chorus of one, my mother dabbed at her eyes with the Kleenex. Gosh, John, can you imagine flying all the way across the country just to take a walk in the woods? No, honey, I sure can't. But then again... Not everyone has a forest in their own backyard. That's a good point, John. That's a very good point. My parents shifted their gaze toward the large tract of woods just beyond our pasture and looked with satisfaction at the epicenter of the sensible, affordable amusements that kept my brothers and me occupied on a daily basis. A swift running creek, a swamp of frogs and cattails, an old wooden bridge, and a maze of hidden trails that might lead anywhere. Later, when I was less gullible and TV commercials were more persuasive, a new parenting style would evolve, one that included phrases like, No, and Because I said so. But when I entered the sixth grade, I did so with a firm understanding that movie theaters were for the illiterate, vacations for the unimaginative, and home delivery for lazy housewives who couldn't cook. As for amusement parks, they were probably okay, if you didn't mind waiting in line all day for the chance to vomit all over your friends.
Hi. How you doing, Mom? I'm doing okay. How you doing? I'm doing all right. You're on the podcast. I'm on the podcast? Yeah, it's happening. Oh, like right now? Why wait? We're busy people. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, what do I do? Well, pretty much whatever you want. Have I called you at a bad time? Well, you told me you might be calling me two hours ago, so I was ready two hours ago. <laughs> if you if you check your email, you'll see that I sent you a Zoom invite, but you didn't respond. So I thought, well, you probably don't want to Zoom. Maybe you just want to talk. So now I'm just calling you and, and recording our conversation because literally dozens of fans of The Way I Heard It are, are desperate to hear your voice and uh, wallow in what I'm sure will be a long list of words and wisdom. Oh, golly. Let me swallow this mouthful of food and I'll sit down at my desk here. I'll try not to disappoint. Did I really call you in the middle of dinner? <laughs> well, in the middle of preparation. And Dad's sound asleep, so we're okay. All right. Well, Dad can sleep and you and I can chat. Now, the, um, the people on the podcast, what I like to call the listeners, have just heard Chapter 5 of my book which means they heard the story I wrote about Margaret Mitchell and then the story uh, about you and Dad uh, trying to raise your three sons. Are you familiar with that uh, body? I am familiar with that. Yes, that story was, that story was funny. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, is it more or less the way you heard it, the way you remember it, as far as you know? Oh, well, I would say there's some slight hyperbole in there. Now, explain what hyperbole means to some of my listeners who might not know that kind of fancy talk. Hyperbole is exaggeration. <laughs> um, it's based on fact, um, but but there's a little bit of exaggeration in there. I'd say just a little. Like what parts? Well, Michael, you, you make us sound like terrible parents. Like we never... <laughs> We never did anything good for you. We deprived you of all kinds of entertainment. And that wasn't so. I mean, we were raising children on a shoestring. That's true. Because your father was a teacher, and teachers don't make a pile of money. And your mother stayed home with the children. Now, why are you and suddenly so talking about yourself in the third person? I don't know, Mike. Don't be so particular. I'm just saying, it's it's a tell you have, because when you lapse into bouts of hyperbole and exaggeration, because you're fundamentally honest, I've noticed that you refer to yourself in the third person, and I think that gives you a certain extra agency to, uh, to prevaricate. Well, I just said that your father was asleep. That's third person. No. And your mother had a mouthful of food. All right, in the story. No, no, wait. You, it's 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 rare that you misspeak, but when you tell me that my father is asleep, that's not third person. He's my father and he's not talking. To talk about yourself in the third person is different, isn't it? Mm-hmm. A little bit. All right, I didn't know you were going to be so specific. Pardon me. Um, I just wanted to say that you portrayed your parents in a light that wasn't altogether accurate, although it was based on it was based on fact, but you did prevaricate just a little bit. 
look, the, but the broad strokes are true. Dad was incredibly parsimonious, um, and you both were very inventive. I mean, you did engender in me a, uh, a certain pity for the well-off. Uh, you really did, whether you meant to or not, and I, I thought that was kind of ingenious. Really? Well, I don't believe that was our intention. You know, let's be fair here. <laughs> we gave our children a lot of experiences. We we went, we took you lots of places. We gave you a lot of, um, yeah, you have a nice history, Mike. You did a lot of stuff growing up. I mean, we took you to the circus. <laughs> um, we took you to the fair. We took you to the zoo. We joined the YMCA so that you could go swimming every day in the summer and have swimming lessons. So don't come off as this, um, you know, this poor deprived child, which you weren't. Now, so it's true that when we took you to the circus, we packed our own snacks. We didn't. We didn't buy the cotton candy and the popcorn and the Cracker Jacks and the peanuts that were so expensive. We had our own little bag of treats. So that's true. You know, I will confess to that. And when we went to the fair, we packed a picnic lunch and they had picnic tables. And instead of buying the incredibly expensive food at the fair, we had our own picnic basket. I, I vividly remember all of that. But the thing that you're forgetting is that you took it a step further. Like I never when you pulled out the popcorn, I remember at the circus, you pulled the popcorn out of your purse and and the whole proposition wasn't oh no we're too poor to buy the expensive popcorn it was our popcorn is better <laughs> we it's handier it's more convenient we don't have to get up we don't have to pay for it obviously that that was just one small thing but it was more about look at all those poor people standing in line waiting to buy popcorn where we have it with us right now because we're forward-thinking people. <laughs> because we plan well, there, ahead. There might have been a little of that. Yes, I do confess that we we might have led you to believe that you were altogether fortunate for having a special popcorn that came from your mother's purse. <laughs> yes, right. And 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 never never did I feel like I was missing out you know, going to the YMCA and swimming. And I mean, that that was the whole point. I never felt neglected until I got older and realized the degree to which you were manipulating us. But fundamentally, the whole story is a compliment on child rearing at a time when money was tight and you didn't want your kid to feel like victims. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, money was tight. And we tried to give you the experiences that were wholesome for children um you know without breaking the bank <laughs> so to speak and our our popcorn was superior it was it was better than the other the other was filled with butter and flavoring ours was just plain popcorn and it was much better for you right because it it, it allowed us to use our imaginations to wonder what normal popcorn tasted like the kind with flavor in it <laughs> Of course, you didn't know what you were missing because you never had that kind. <laughs> and when we took you to the movies, we always took our own snacks, too. Nowadays, they don't allow snacks <laughs> to come in your purse. They they frown on that. They want you to buy, you know. But back then, 
it didn't matter. When's the last time you guys actually went to a movie? I mean, obviously pre-COVID, you haven't been out of the apartment. But when's the last time you were in a theater? Oh, my goodness, Mike. Trying to remember what we saw. I can't even remember. You know, maybe about five years ago we went to a movie. Isn't that terrible? Well, I remember you telling me you went to see... You wanted to see a film, and you wound up walking into... I th- was it something about Mary? Oh, yeah. That's right. We did... You know, when we go to the movies and when we're on vacation, when in the winter, when we go to Florida and we stay with your brother um, for sometimes a couple of months or a month, sometimes we'll go to the movies when we're down there. Yes, we did. We went into one movie and we, we were really shocked. <laughs> I think it was something about Mary. Um, she... Somebody was standing at the door and they had something in their hair that was really disgusting. And I think we turned around and walked out and we went into the little theater right next to it. It was one of these complexes where they had five five movie theaters mm-hmm. off of a hallway. Yeah, and we, we sneaked into the next one and we liked that movie better. Oh, that was Mr. Holland's opus. It has been a while since we went to the movies. <laughs> but it was good. So you went to see a heartwarming story of a of a music teacher and wound up seeing Cameron Diaz standing at the door with a suspicious substance causing her hair to stick straight up. Yeah, actually, we went to that one first, something about Mary, because it sounded wholesome. I probably thought it was a religious film, and um, and we were shocked, and we turned around and walked out. We didn't stay real long. I'm sure it was a good movie, and we didn't give it a fair chance, but Mr. Holland's opus was really great. <laughs> okay, well, look, um, you're on the podcast because you were the subject of the uh, previous story, and I, I told the people on Facebook I was going to invite you on, and and they wanted me to ask you all sorts of questions, but it's all book-related. Everybody wants to know if there's a third book coming and you know what it what it feels like to be you know as ancient as you are, and um, somehow or another uh, begun a whole new third act in your life, and so forth and so on. So, if you want to brag about yourself, this is the time to do it. Well, I am still upright. Um, you know, I'm in pretty good health, and I do love to write, and I seem to be able to do it fairly well. Um, and I am on my third book. I have finished about. I've done about 10 stories, but a few of them need more work. So I'm, I've, I'm finished about seven stories, but I have a long way to go. So it will probably be another year before it's ready. And this is the fun part. I mean, the writing part is really, and you know that yourself, um, it's really enjoyable to sit down and write. Um, the not so fun part is after you finish and then you hand it to the hand it to the publisher and he has all kinds of requests and then you've got to flog it you've got to flog that thing until you hate it and then you have to keep talking about how much you love it (laughs) well you know this has been really unusual because my book was launched april 14th this year the same time um that the pandemic came about or as you like to say the plague the plague was launched (laughs) 
same time my book was launched. Right. And, um, you know, marketing a book during a pandemic is very interesting. Thank heavens for Zoom. Um, I've done a lot of book events on Zoom. But I do miss live audiences. Um, live people, are <laughs> they there's, give you a lot more feedback. They're so much more interesting than the dead ones. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. well, well, you know what I'm doing tomorrow? I mean, this is uh, Sunday right now when you and I are recording this. I'm spending every day this week, I will be talking about uh, Discovery Plus and Six Degrees. And it's going to be super weird because obviously there was enormous news last week and that's going to be sucking all the air out of the room. So think about me. I'll be on the Today Show at some point, Tuesday or Wednesday, I think. Oh, I'm going to write that down. Mike on the Today Show. Okay. Tuesday or Wednesday? I'll look it up. Look it up. Are you going to be, you going to be anywhere else? Yeah, there's a whole long list of things. There's a satellite media tour on Wednesday or Thursday, which means I'll just be, you know, on dozens of different stations all over. I just sit down here in my office where I am right now, and I'll be Skyping and Zooming in. And it's really funny because, you know, now I, I don't have to get on a plane. I don't have to fly to New York. I don't have to check into an expensive hotel. And I don't have to spend four days in cars running all over town. What I do instead is I just sit here and reach four times more people, but go completely out of my mind because you're just sitting here for 12 hours in a row over and over and over. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It could get boring, I think. Well, do you have a minute for an unsolicited critique? Because I have had time to watch your first episode. Of Six Degrees? Yeah, yeah. I finally figured out how to do it. I haven't figured out how to get it on the TV yet. I know <clears throat> we can do it. <clears throat> but so far, I've just watched it on the computer. Dad hasn't seen it yet, but I really enjoyed it. Good. And so did my dentist. I went to the dentist the other day, and he asked me if I'd seen it yet. I said, yeah. He said, we really enjoyed it. So that's that's good news. And I think my dermatologist might have seen it, too. <laughs> she was in such a hurry. You know, she gets you in and out in a hurry. But anyway, I loved it. I didn't realize it's very highly produced. I mean, there are so many special effects. And, and it's informative. And it's educational. And I love Chuck. Every time I turn around, there's Chuck. There's another character. And, you know, it's really funny. <laughs> It's kind of funny because I sort of had a drink every time I saw Chuck. It was like a little drinking game with me. And I thought, oh, there's Chuck. I'll have a little sip of this. That oh, there's not, Chuck. Yeah, that's, he's a policeman. Look, oh, look, he's... Yeah, anyway, I that, liked it. That's not the game you want to play uh, yeah. with this show because Chuck is literally in every scene, upstaging me at every possible turn, but... Yeah, I'm, I know. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm glad you like it. I hope Dad likes it. Being a history teacher, you know, he'll be well, critiquing it pretty hard, I'm sure. I'm going to show it to him tonight. I'm going to bring it up on my on my computer again tonight, and we'll watch the first episode again. I'll let you know. Um, I'll let you know what he thinks about it, but he'll like it. I mean, it's, it's hard for us to be um, objective. You know, we, we like everything. Well, most things that our children do. This is this is not true. You've been brutally honest with me over the years on a number of occasions about 
um, the various ways I've uh, disappointed you in my chosen field. Well, I have to say this this show is a lot cleaner than Dirty Jobs. You look a lot cleaner and you haven't done anything disgusting so far. <laughs> and you really look good, Mike. You look really fit. Well, And so does Chuck. You know, you know what? Chuck lost 30 30, 35 pounds? I think 30 pounds. Wow. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe you were a good influence, you think? The fact that you... I know I was. You know, I yeah. I hadn't been in the office for a long time, and I went down there, and I lost 40. And, you know, Chuck was just enormous at the time. I thought, no, that's no good. So, yeah, during the pandemic, he's walked like five or six miles a day. Well, that's good. You know, over the course of my adulthood, I've probably lost about 500 pounds. <laughs> I've gone on a lot of diets. And really, I should be the size of a little a charm, like a charm on a charm bracelet. I have lost so much weight over the years, but I just can't seem to stick with it. Now, well, who cares? You're 82. Eat what you want. Right when you feel like it. Say whatever comes be, to mind. I will be 83 in a couple of weeks. Isn't that scary? Oh, my God. That's right. And you know what? This this year just sucks so bad. Wait a minute. Last year, I guess. Well, this year's not off to a great start, but you guys had your 60th wedding anniversary. Couldn't do anything I for you. I know. I know. Well, we'll, we'll catch up. We'll, well we're catching we'll up now. We'll get together. I mean, in the gift category. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, be able, you'll be able to give us something pretty soon <laughs> we are dying to go someplace any place you know what i did this morning yeah. we went to church and guess who we took with us you will never guess you physically went we physically went to church this morning we've been doing that um the sanctuary is large and we have a skeletal congregation coming maybe 20 people and the rest are on zoom and we took someone near and dear to our hearts with us this morning. Who? We took Freddie. You sent us two Freddie masks. <laughs> and they have pictures of, I mean, these are real, like, photographs of Freddie. So we took Freddie to church this morning. And he said, <laughs> where are we? I've never seen a place like this. He said, my biped never takes me to church. <laughs> Very funny. Very yes. funny. I think he enjoyed it. Uh, there was a, a solo today, uh, and it was called um, His Eyes on the Sparrow. Mm -hmm. And I think Freddie liked that because I've seen him eyeing the birds in your backyard. Well, I've seen him more than eyeing them. In fact, oh, no. Yeah, this is terrible. I, I, I don't think I've ever wrote about this or certainly told you, but. He's, <laughs> we were coming back from a walk and there was a rustling in the ivy and he, and he jumped over the retaining wall and uh, a bird had fallen out of a nest. It's a baby bird. And Fred oh. picked up the bird in his mouth and I, I still wasn't sure what it was and he, and he ran over to me and, you know, he kind of reared up on his hind legs and all that was sticking out were the little bird's feet. And I said, oh, Fred, give me the bird. Open your mouth. And he bit down and swallowed, and the bird was gone. He swallowed it oh, whole. Oh, no. Yeah. And, um, so his eye was on the sparrow. <laughs> really? I mean. And his, and his teeth were on the sparrow. Uh, 
It's just, you know, it's just good. Look, oh, well. Nature, tooth, and claw. Look, everybody yeah. thinks he's just this adorable little creature, you know, and, and, and he is. But in the end, he'll he'll eat you alive. Well, I mean, like, it is nature, really. It's, you know, he's programmed. He's programmed to catch to catch small things and eat them. <laughs> <laughs> and that he did. Hey, well, talk- he... <laughs> If, if you have anything else you want to say, go ahead and say it. Because we've been talking for 20 minutes. I can't imagine anybody's really going to listen to us do this. But oh, you, you I, really never know. I'm sure they hung up a long time ago or they turned turned it off. No, I don't have anything profound to say. I have to go in the kitchen now and fix some supper for us, your father and your mother. Is he still sleeping? I don't hear him, so I think he is. He had an extra long walk today. You know what? So he's probably... All right. Oh, he's pushed. What are you having for dinner? What are you making? I was going to have a salad, but I forgot to buy tomatoes. Hmm. So I'm having some roast beef sandwiches and a, a little platter of cold veggies and dip. I've got broccoli and carrots and some uh, cauliflower. So so we're eating healthy. You don't have to worry about us. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, before I say goodbye, I need to remind people that um, they can uh, download my book, uh, listen to the audio version of it wherever people do that, and um, yeah, because I promised the publisher I would I would tell people that. So I'm a promise made is a debt unpaid, Mom, as you may have heard. Well, Michael, I don't know why you guys didn't send me some books. You sent me one book, and I gave that to my sister, and now I I thought I had a book. <laughs> I thought I had a book on the table because I have read it, but it was your book cover, but it was on a dummy book. <laughs> It was another book inside. It was very disappointing. Chuck, Chuck so. told me this. What? So just so people know, what happens is before you get the book off the press, you have to start hawking it. So the publisher sends you old books. Doesn't matter what it is, and they and they put the cover on it, so you have something to hold up, right? When they take your picture. Right. And so that's what we did. And we were in Baltimore, and you were there, and we were doing an ad for the book. And you must have taken that book home because Chuck told me when he told you that I wanted to call you and talk to you about chapter five, that you picked up the book and started reading chapter five, which is not chapter five in my book. Absolutely not. This was about women being in charge. Um, And it didn't make sense. And I didn't remember a title as, you know, from your book like this anyway so okay so maybe chuck will send me another book he might he might not you know i got one here i'll send it to you okay because my sister was just desperate for one it's uh 24.95 oh okay the book checks in the mail hon don't expect it anytime soon (laughs) your brothers just got their christmas gift (laughs) hey Um, actually you know what the paperback version's coming out so sit tight i'll get you one of those for free Oh, is it? Well, that's even better. That's not as heavy for arthritic hands. I can read that in book, in bed. Yes, I do need to read it again. All right, Mom. I got to go. I love you. All right. Love you, too. All right. Enjoy dinner. Say hi to Dad. Is Chuck still there? Is Chuck there? No, no. He's, uh, he was back east, but he's back. He's back in L.A. um, waiting for me to uh, finish this recording so I can send it to him so he can post it. Oh, okay. All right, honey. Well, this was fun. You call me anytime. Do I have to record it each time? 
no, no, you don't. In fact, I prefer you not to. And if you do, you let me know ahead of time because you never know what I might say. Thanks for coming by my humble little podcast, Mother. I do love you. All right, you. honey. I wouldn't miss your podcast. Love them. All right. All right. It's, a, it's a privilege to be on it. Bye. It's a, go, goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs> well, there she is, my mother. Uh, I hope you enjoyed her. I miss her and I uh, apologize for the audio, but I couldn't figure out our normal microphone, so I'm just talking to you off the computer. Anyway, let me know how boring this was over on my Facebook page. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next week.